Welcome to Ormwood Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and to our podcast where we share our Sunday sermons for those in Ormwood Park, Atlanta, and beyond. Our mission is to welcome everyone to explore the living God in all of our neighborhoods, and we value welcoming others, opening our minds, being of service, and participating in whatever ways God calls us. We hope you learn, grow, and find a place to belong with us. So we come to the gospel according to Luke today. Um, And like we've done in the past, we did a little informational session before we actually dove into the sermon. And so I want to do that again. And so let me tell you a little bit about the gospel of Luke before we get into the sermon. Um, First, like every single other gospel, we don't actually know the exact author, right? Um... Tradition has assigned it to Luke, most likely Paul the Apostle's companion. Um, and so we we kind of just go with that. <laughs> it, no, nowhere in the Gospel of Luke is it stated like, hi, it's me, Luke, I'm writing this. Um, but honestly, to get to the heart of Luke, we don't need to know who exactly wrote it, just like the other Gospels, because we can infer what's important to him and how he is shaping and understanding Jesus's mission to be applicable to his own community. And that community is most likely Gentile, um, and so not not in um, Jerusalem, not uh, close to that area, most likely out further into the Roman Empire. And there's a, a lovely kind of um, back and forth between Jewish tradition and the Gentile congregation that most likely um, was home to the Gospel of Luke in that um, this community must be well-versed in the Septuagint, which is the Greek um, Old Testament. It is woven throughout Luke's gospel. And so because of that, um, some people think that the author is actually um, a sympathizer with Judaism, that that perhaps first uh, this author um, was, was not Jewish himself, uh, but was following the law as a Gentile could. He was as close as kind of he could get and then moved into a Christian community. Um, and so the Septuagint is kind of woven throughout Luke's gospel. And Luke uh, even writes some things in the style of the Septuagint. So that's really interesting um, about Luke. Now, we do not know exactly the time either, right? We always say likely before we say anything about these um, gospels. However, um, this this gospel definitely uses Mark. And so sometime after 70 uh, CE, which means after the fall of Jerusalem. And that makes sense because he also has passages in the gospel of Luke that allude to kind of post um post-destruction of the temple times. So we've got that. Um, So maybe like 80 to 95 CE, right? Just very similar to Matthew. Both of those are going to be probably after Mark or most likely after Mark and then before John. So what is unique about the Gospel of Luke? Unique. Did you know Luke has a sequel? (laughs) It's a two-parter right? And that is the the book of Acts in the New Testament. So if we could rearrange the order of the New Testament, we would most likely, now that we know what we know, put Luke and Acts right next to each other. That's not how they are in the New Testament, but that's what we would do because they are written by the same person for the same community. Um, and they have a lot of the same focus. And one of that is the Holy Spirit. 
the Holy Spirit is an active agent and instigator of God's purposes in the world. The other thing that the Gospel of Luke is unique and known for is this focus on the poor. And when I say the word poor, I don't only mean like financially poor. I also mean people who are marginalized, people who are on the outside of a community looking in, who have been rejected. That is going to be a big emphasis for the writer of Luke in what is Jesus's ministry. And part of that probably is because he ha he knows what that's like, right? Um, being a sympathizer of Judaism, but not being Jewish. Um, and so there is this sense that the gospel of Luke is always focusing kind of on these peripheral places and saying, hey, this is actually where the kingdom of God dwells. Now, in the vein of that, the same vein, the gospel of Luke is going to be connecting his current community with that salvific legacy of Israel. And so this is kind of known as the universalizing gospel because it's going to move from um, the legacy of Israel and salvation of God and expand that out further and further to Gentiles and to the world. Um, that's kind of the movement that Luke takes us on through the gospel of Luke and then into Acts. The other unique thing is that, you know, how um, we talked about Matthew having those sections of teachings, um, the teaching blocks throughout his gospel. Luke does something different. Luke actually has most of um, Jesus's teachings and parables and such in what we would call the travel narrative. Now, Luke has like an introduction in his gospel and then the, of course, the crucifixion and resurrection ending. And in between those, there is this travel narrative where Jesus sets his heart toward Jerusalem and all of the stories are leading up to him getting there. Now, it's a lot of stories. It's a long portion of time. It's not like a three-day weekend that he's getting to Jerusalem. Um, but that's how Luke kind of uh, organizes the content of Jesus. Jesus is setting his sights on Jerusalem and everything is leading up to this understanding that Jesus is going to be this salvation for everyone, even the people at the margins. So friends, we're going to get to it with the gospel of Luke. Um, and I am going to show my cards here. Luke is probably one of my favorite gospels, one of my favorite New Testament books in general. So there, I've said it. I've admitted it. <laughs> but we're going to move to Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Now, just a reminder, I am reading from Sarah Reden's translation um, of the Gospels. And that means that I'm going to say some of these weird names um, because she is transliterating the names in her translation instead of translating them into English, the words that we recognize. So listen now for a word from God. Then Iesus entered Jericho and was passing through it. But look, there was a man who was called by the name Zacchaeus, and he was the chief tax collector and was personally wealthy. And he was trying to see which one Iesus was. But due to the crowd, he couldn't because he hadn't grown to a normal height and was still so small. So he ran ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see Iesus. And he was about to pass through by that route. And when Iesus came to the spot, he looked up. And he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry up and climb down, because I need to stay at your house today. And he hurried and climbed down and welcomed him with joy. And when they saw, everyone complained loudly, saying, he's gone in to relax as the guest of a man who's a criminal. But Zacchaeus stood fast and said to the master, look, master, I'm giving away half of my property to the destitute. And if I've exhorted anyone, 
I'm paying him back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, a rescue has come to this house, seeing that he's a son of Abram too. The son of mankind has in fact come to seek out and rescue what was lost. So you are really not supposed to toot your own horn during sermons, like baseline we learned that in seminary, like this isn't the Janelle show. Um, but what if it's a story that precedes even our own memory? I have this picture that sits behind my desk in my office. And if you looked at it, you'd, you'd be like, Janelle, come on, that is janky. It's an image of a monkey holding a kitten. And it is scratched in many places. The image is fading. Some young version of myself painted in the scratches with dark black paint for some reason. Um, it looks like a piece of artwork you wouldn't even put in your, you know, grandmother's grandmother's lake house bathroom. That's, it's just not nice. The picture in my office is also nestled between nice things, right? So family photos, a hand-drawn stenciling of Hamilton lyrics from a friend, our colorful fellowship hall picture that we drew together five years ago. It is obviously the most ugly thing on display. So why does this picture stay with me? Why does this picture of this monkey holding this kitten saying, once in a while, you find a friend who will be a friend forever? Why do I keep it? Well, in kindergarten, a new girl named Meadow moved into the neighborhood. She had to start school months after the rest of us. So this is kind of her first ding against her, right? And I vaguely remember that she was pretty bubbly um, and friendly, but she didn't wear the best clothes. And perhaps she too eagerly gave off the vibe that she really wanted to be liked. I remember, again, so vaguely, this is really precedes most of my memory that she had, but I remember that she had a rough start, and I don't remember much after that. Until the memory where her mother brought her over to my parents' duplex to drop something off. And this little gift of gratitude for friendship was it, this monkey and kitten picture. Because apparently some kindergarten version of Janelle that I don't remember made Meadow feel welcome included her in games, talked with her at lunch, and on the back it simply says to Janelle, from your friend Meadow. I have no memory of most of this, but when I found it in my memory box years later in middle school, I pulled it out and I put it on my desk in my bedroom or wherever else I have lived ever since, because regardless of how great I was as a five-year-old, apparently, I have no memory again, in this one instance, I knew and I know that it takes a commitment and a daily reminder from this monkey and kitten to live like this every day of my life, not just my five-year-old life. And this is why I love and am often inspired by and convicted by the Gospel of Luke, because it's about pulling up the chair to an ever-widening table. And as we talked a little bit about with the past, with the poster um, this morning, the author of Luke is speaking from experience about God's wide table. He was most likely an admirer or sympathizer with Judaism. So he's an outsider or a person that's enthusiastically looking in for the margins. And then later he was welcomed into the early Christian church as it moved out from Jerusalem into more Gentile heavy areas. Again, this is kind of the shared agreement on the history of Luke from what we can tell. So Luke has watched this expansion unfold before his eyes, this experience of Christianity being a Jewish movement to being a movement unto itself and scooping up people who are radically different from each other. 
because of this, Luke celebrates the good news, the gospel of Jesus as the good news of being included in a community you never expected to receive an invitation from. Take our story about Zacchaeus. I'm going to go back to Zacchaeus. <laughs> Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. Many of us uh, learned that song growing up. Or better translated by Sarah Redden, he had not grown to normal height. He was marked as an outsider by his very body from the very beginning of his life. And it wouldn't surprise me that his rejection from his physical appearance made being eligible for a respectable profession difficult. So he's a tax collector, a commiserator with the empire. He works for Rome. And as many tax collectors did, it seemed like Zacchaeus took a bit more off the top than he should. It was common practice to charge more in taxes so that the collector, the middleman, profited largely from the work. And this brought on another layer of social rejection for Zacchaeus. Now, when we arrive at the story in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on his travels on the way to Jerusalem, which again, I said, takes a lot of chapters and a lot of stops. And he arrives at Jericho. Zacchaeus most likely does not have a lot of social collateral on the table. So this adult man climbs a tree just to glimpse Jesus walking through the crowds in town. Out of all the people in the crowd, Jesus looks up and sees this man. Jesus's first words are not, you're a disappointment, or how could you work for Rome, or have you betrayed your people? No, his first words are, I need you, come down. I need you, come down. I need to stay at your house tonight. Zacchaeus is needed, wanted, part of Jesus's plan and community, and even part of Jesus's support. Jesus knows that offering this man, rejected and marginalized, most likely his whole life, that offering him a welcome into the love and kingdom of God would transform him. The kingdom of God for Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is not a pay-to-play type of affair. The kingdom of God is an invitation-wielding type of empire where those who need healing, community, love, they receive it with open arms and are forever transformed by it. Luke offers story after story of Jesus' teaching and practices of inclusion for those who likely never thought they'd receive an invitation. Some of those stories, you're familiar with them. A renegade son is offered a feast upon his repentant return, the prodigal son. Women are celebrated for funding Jesus's ministry. Those who choose the lowest seat at the table are welcome to the highest. The poor, crippled, blind, and lame attend the host's dinner party. The rich man goes to hell and his beggar at the gate ends up in heaven. A pious Pharisee prays unsuccessfully in public and the humble tax collector laments his way into a blessing. A Samaritan is praised for being a good neighbor while the priest passes up the opportunity. The female foot washer is better than the real host. In academic circles, people call this Jesus's preference for the poor. And we shouldn't limit the word poor, like I said, to meaning financially strapped. It definitely could mean that. It means poor in wealth, but also in social standing, in health, in power. Those who are the most vulnerable are the exact people populating God's gracious and generous kingdom. Those who safeguard, circle wagons, 
gatekeep. They're the ones in the Gospel of Luke that get the long lectures from Jesus. Even from the cross, the Messiah is generously offering forgiveness to the soldiers who are crucifying him. That's what we find in Luke, right? That familiar, forgive them, they know not what they do. And he's the one comforting the prisoner mounted next to him. This is where we hear that phrase, we will be together in paradise today. What does it mean to know God? It means to know that there's a place for you at the table and it has nothing to do with your status, your piety, your social standing, your education. None of that can be stacked high enough to mount some imaginary wall between God and us. That's just not how God works. The place at God's table for us has everything to do with simply experiencing the generous nature of God's commonwealth, both for yourself and for others, seeing it and trusting it. And in that acceptance of bountiful grace, in understanding that grace is how God's world actually works, there is a transformation to live our own lives full of grace and generosity. Through his own acceptance into the early Christian community, the author of the Gospel of Luke knew that God's love wasn't limited just to Israel. It wasn't even limited just to Christianity. Jesus came to make God's generosity of spirit available to anyone willing to take a seat at this table of misfits and call it home. I want y'all to think. I want us to think about those on the margins in our own lives. Maybe it's yourself. Maybe you've stopped listening to yourself. Maybe it's the poor. How would you define the poor in your life? Our own assurance of a place at God's table is one part of Luke's good news of Jesus. However much Luke's gospel is a reminder of God's welcome to people who we might overlook, we might feel uncomfortable around or avoid. Who are these people? What is our welcome to them like? I'm going to get a little more, you know, in the in the weeds of this, and I want to give us an example. We just passed my late mother-in-law's birthday. She's been dead for about a year now, and for those who don't know, she died from complications related to dementia. And as we age later and later in life, dementia to me seems to be one of those growing places of marginalization. People facing the loss of their minds their community, and for some, their ability to access loving care. I know some of you in this sanctuary feel that strain acutely. And I know some of you listening to this podcast right now probably are experiencing that either yourself or with parents. So I came across what I would call a Gospel of Luke story in Dr. Uh, Rachel Naomi Remen's book, My Grandfather's Blessings. Now, this book is where she shares stories of her experiences in the medical field. And she has a couple um, kind of edition, not editions of this book, but a couple books similar to this where she tells these short stories, um, hopeful, usually definitely fruitful and learning stories. And so I want to offer one of her stories today as a modern day parable of God's generous kingdom to those who are often left out of other kingdoms. This story is called Bearing Witness. After a dozen years, Alzheimer's disease had virtually destroyed Muriel's brain, erasing her memories and with them all of her sense of who she was. Confined to a nursing home, she was adrift and frightened, given to pacing back and forth in a seemingly endless fashion, filled with a nameless anxiety. Such repetitive pacing is common in people at the last stages of this disease, almost as if they're being driven to search for something hopelessly lost. 
All the staff efforts to ease her fear had failed, and for a long time she was at rest only when she slept, and her unending movement had caused her to become painfully thin. Then one day, quite by accident, as she passed the full-length mirror that hung to the left of the door to the courtyard, she caught sight of her own reflection in the glass. Becoming still for the first time in many months, she stood before it fascinated, an odd expression on her face. She looked as if she had just met a friend from long ago, someone whose face was vaguely familiar, but whose connection to oneself cannot be immediately recalled. As a result of her disease, Muriel had not spoken in many months, but drawn to the image in the mirror for reasons long forgotten, she began to speak to it in a language all her own. Day after day, she would stand and talk to the woman in the mirror for hours on end. It made her calm. The nurses welcomed her new behavior with relief. Her endless pacing and anxiety had made her difficult to care for. Accustomed to much random senseless behavior on the part of their patients, they paid little further attention to how she now spent her time. But her doctor saw this differently. I'm going to read that again. But her doctor saw this differently. Every day on his rounds, he would stop at the mirror and spend some time with this patient. Standing next to her, he too would talk to the woman in the mirror with his usual kindness and respect. Once at the end of one of his longer chats with Muriel's reflection, he was deeply moved to notice that Muriel had tears in her eyes. I was deeply moved as well. Unable to cure his patient's brutal disease, this true physician instinctively lengthened her last connection to herself with his simple presence and validated her worth as a human being. Friends, according to the Gospel of Luke, the kingdom of God that Jesus offers us is a table set for those who are hungry. May we all eat and be filled and then pass the plate to the one who is sitting next to us. Amen.